You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org. There's some of us here today who are here. Yeah, you're free, but really truly are. Some of you are in prison with some kinds of stuff in your life, and you need to have freedom from that. And God can free you from that today, from guilt, from shame, from all kinds of stuff. He is you to free you. Amen? Amen. The Spirit says, the Lord says, where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty. And he whom the Son, Jesus, sets free, he is free indeed. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Well, it's good to see all of you. Turn to somebody and say, hey, you're looking good today. Understand that uh, some of our some of our parishioners are sick today. Some of them are. There's a lot of people sick, and this is a beautiful weather, though, isn't it? It's clear as a bell. You could see forever. I told the early morning service today. This these days are when I know that I'm I was I'm called to Southern California. This is just beautiful today, and so enjoy it. Because I think next week we'll have another round of uh, storms coming. Okay, now I'm going to try this. <laughs> well, there it is. Oops. You already put it on. Okay. This is all new to me. It's your life. Own it. My text is in Ezekiel chapter 18, 1 to 32. We're going to refer passages of Scripture in that chapter today. We're not going to read all of that. In the early part of the Old Testament, God defined a principle for the people of Israel, and it is this, the sins of the father are visited upon the children, on the children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, the children and their children's children will in one way, shape, or form suffer the consequences of your sin. Now, a lot of people would say, you know what, that's, that's, that doesn't seem fair. Why would God say this? Well, he wanted the people to understand and to know that you don't sin in a vacuum. Your actions affects others. When you do something wrong, you invite negative consequences, which not only impact your life, but also impact the lives of your children and your children's children and so on. So your sin is not only making it hard on yourself, it's making it hard on everyone who comes after you. Now, this is easy to see. If a man is a drunkard, an alcoholic, an abusive, and irresponsible with money, he'll certainly suffer the consequences personally. But do you know who else suffers? His family, his children. And it's not their fault that dad is mean and out of control and abusive, but they bear the brunt of it, don't they? That's because you don't sin in a vacuum. Your behavior affects others. You all see this, for example, in the business world. If the leaders of the corporation make risky financial decisions, i.e. Enron, who pays the price? Everyone on the corp- in the corporation, stockholders, 
employees down to the janitor. And so the Old Testament teaches how we must recognize the recurring consequences of our behavior, that we must recognize how one person's sin can be detrimental and will affect others as well. There's a term that you probably have heard, this philosophy of blame. What is that? Well, it's what happens when you blame other people for your problems. It is a way of explaining why life has not worked the way you would like it to work. You have been treated unfairly. You've been dealt with with a lousy hand of cards. You are a victim. And that's how you go through life, by blaming other people for the bad things that had happened to you. If you're late in a report or a project at work, that's easy, man. You say, hey, I would have turned it in earlier, but Frank was late in getting all the statistics to me and the details. If you lose your job, it's because the boss is unreasonable. Why? He did not understand you. He had it on for you, man. He hated the moment you walked in the office. If you did not keep a promise, it's because you were busy doing other things. If you fail to do your homework at school, it's because your roommate borrowed the textbook and would not give it back to you in time. If you lost your temper, huh, that's easy. It's because they provoked you. I was just having my merry way on the Harbor Freeway, going to church, listening to worship music, Hillsong, as a matter of fact. Mm -mm -mm. Listening to Andy uh, Stanley or Charles Stanley. And all of a sudden, this blank uh, lady driver cut in front of me. And I lost it, man. My wife has heard me say that a number of times. And some of you don't be so holy, man. Some of you have done it. Anyway. If a relationship ended, it could not have been your fault. You're such an easy, not easy going guy. You're easy to get. You, of course not. Of course it's not your fault. It's the, the other person is a creep. That's what. That's all there is to it. Sound familiar? It ought to. Most of us know all too well about being a victim. Years ago, we've learned the victim's battle cry. It's not my fault. No. We're not always sure whose fault it is, but we know it's not my fault. This principle is true, and it always will be. Over the centuries, it began to be misconstrued until it developed into something like a theology of blame. The idea behind this principle of recurring consequences was that your actions have consequences, so be careful what you do. Over the years, however, this attitude among the people of Israel became, our problems are not our fault, man. They are the fault of our ancestors, our parents. We did not create the mess we're in. We are paying for their sins, and there's nothing we can do about it. Blame them. It's their fault. 
Does that attitude sound familiar? Does it sound contemporary? As you can imagine, over the years, I've counseled a lot of people who are convinced that all their problems are the fault of someone else. If it's not our parents, it's probably our brothers and our sisters. They never treated us right. We are always overlooked. But if not our parents, the world is still full of candidates, people. The government, the school system, our neighbors, you know, our grandparents, they messed us up. Or maybe it was the friends we ran around in high school, right? Maybe we ran with the wrong crowd and they corrupted us. Or maybe we ran with a good crowd and we became too good for our own good. Anyway, of course, you can always blame your husband. After all, he is insensitive, he is self-absorbed, he is selfish, you know. Or you can blame your wife. She's far from perfect. Or maybe, maybe it's the people you work with. Ah, there is the ticket, folks. They are nothing but a bunch of lying, no-good backstabbers, and on it goes. We are the innocent victims. Just ask us. Have you ever known anyone like that? No doubt you have. We all have. But I want you to take a moment and think a little deeper. Has this been your attitude? Have you ever caught yourself saying some of these things? If it were not for my parents, I'd not be so messed up. If it were not for my husband, I'll have a better marriage. If it were not for my boss, I... I'll do my job better. If it were not for my friends, I would not be given to temptation all the time. There are many people today who define their existence with, by this philosophy of blame. It's not my fault. I am just the victim. This is a problem in our culture. It tends to encourage the it-is-not-my-fault mentality. You see it in the amount of frivolous lawsuits, litigations that is out there. We all have heard the one about the woman who spilled scalding coffee, you know, and successfully sued McDonald's. What about the burglars who in injured themselves, man, during the robbery? And you know what they did? They were suing the homeowners because of the injuries they suffered while robbing the home. Now, now, a lot of us, most of us laugh at all of these stories as urban legends made to show the absurdity of frivolous lit litigations and lawsuits. But you might be surprised, however, by how many of these are true. Listen to some of these lawsuits. Richard Overton sued... Anheuser-Busch for false advertising on television because drinking a six-pack of Bud Light failed to produce visions of beautiful women on a beach. He sought damages claiming that this deceptive marketing television advertising scheme 
caused him with psychological distress. Poor guy. In other words, Overton was mad that drinking beer did not equal beautiful beach babes. The case, of course, was dropped. Overton learned a lesson or two about the difference between fantasy and reality. In reality, drinking excessive amounts of Bud Light will only give you a sizable beer gut. Not only that, but also a noticeable proof against or repellent towards women. What about Lauren Rosenberg? Well, she decided to sue Google Maps for an excess of $100,000. You know why? She did not have a car, and so she accessed Google Maps for directions. The electronic device assumed she was driving a car. And so Google apparently directed her to take Utah State Route 244, a busy freeway, mind you, without sidewalks. Nonetheless, she meandered along the edge of this busy freeway, trusting this electronic device over her apparently missing common sense and her own eyeballs, an obvious lack of good judgment to get her to her destination, causing her to get hit by a car. Duh. And how about the bank robber who gets shot by a deputy because he pointed a gun at him and so he gets shot. And so what did he do? He sued the city for medical bills. But this one takes the cake. An eight-year-old boy who was sued by his own aunt for a careless hug, believe it or not. The boy leapt into her arms, so she was so thrilled that the auntie came to his birthday party. And so he jumped into her arms. The jump caused her to fall to the ground and break her wrist. She argued that that eight year old boy should have known that a, that a forceful greeting such as the one delivered could cause harm. And so she sued the eight-year-old boy for $75,000. Blame can be a very comfortable refuge. And many seek shelter there. This was the case in Ezekiel's day, when the people of Israel were living in captivity in Babylon, the general opinion was, it's not our fault. It's our parents' fault. And so, God gave Ezekiel a message to pass on to the people of Israel. The message was basically, it is time to stop fixing blame and start Fixing your own life. So let's look at today's text. Ezekiel 13, verse 1. There you go. Oh, verse 20 it says. Well, anyway, let me look at verse 1. Let me, I don't have it here. Let me read verse 1 for you. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, meaning the fathers have sinned and the children were punished for their transgressions. 
Why are you quoting that stuff? You're right. So, by the way, this particular proverb was also quoted in Jeremiah. Apparently, it was known, a known saying or precept, and they used it because it provided the people someone to blame. But listen to what God says next. Verse 3. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. Verse 4, for every living soul belongs to me. The father as well as the son, both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Now what does that mean? The soul who sins is the one who will die. Uh, he explains it in detail in the following verses. But what it primarily means is that each person reaps the consequences of his or her own behavior. You can no longer take refuge in the idea that all your problems are the fault of someone else. God is saying it is now time to take responsibility for your own actions because more than anything else, your actions determine your future. And he gives examples beginning in verse 5. Suppose, he says, there is a righteous man. He does not lie. He does not cheat. He doesn't steal. He follows God and lives by the law. This man will be blessed. Now suppose he has a son who is not righteous. The son lies, cheats, and steals. He does not follow God or walk in his ways. This man will not be blessed. With his life, he will pay the price for his sins. And then he goes on and he says, Now suppose the son has a son, and he decides not to follow the path of his rebellious father. Instead, he pursues righteousness. He's honest and fair with others. He does not lie, cheat, or steal. He has integrity. He walks with God and follows his ways. God says, this man won't pay the price for his father's sin. He will be blessed. Why? Because of his own righteousness. Are you there? The idea that a son would not be punished for the sins of his father was a revolutionary concept in the ancient Near East. You know why? Not, not just for the people of Israel, but for all cultures at that time. Because in other cultures, there were laws on the books. For example, if a man seduced another man's daughter, his punishment was that he had to turn his wife over to prostitution. Another law stated that if a man killed another man's son, the punishment was that his son must be killed also. So it's this idea of corporate punishment permeated the ancient cultures in the ex to the extent that the people would say, my teeth are set on edge because of the sour grapes my father ate. In other words, I am the way I am, and I can't help myself. I'm not responsible for my behavior. It's my ancestors' fault and not my own. Blame them. 
And that is why Ezekiel's message was, in many ways, mind-boggling, mind-revolutionary, uh, mind-bending. Verse 19 says, Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? And he answers, Since the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely Live. God was telling the people of Israel, it's time for you to take ownership of your situation. Stop fixing the blame on others. Start fixing the problems you are up against. And today, he would say the same thing to you, to us. Take ownership of your situation Stop fixing the blame. Start fixing your life. Now, if you are stuck in a rut of thinking that your misery is the result of someone else's mistakes, well, today I want you to consider three things that briefly that will you know, help you take control of yourself, your life, and your future. This is number one right here. Read that for me. Right? What? What is it? You. I want to hear it. You. Who is responsible for you? you? Me, right? Not you. Don't point to your wife. Ha, ha, ha. All right? Okay. In other words, you control your own destiny more than anyone else. Others may have some amount of influence. I get that. But that does not change the fact that you are responsible for you and the choices that you make. And listen to what God says in verse 20. It's right there. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him and to him alone. And the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them or him. And a few verses later says in verse 30, Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one, according to his ways. Is it there? Yeah, there it is. In other words, you are responsible for you. You pay your own way in this life. Now, Paul teaches the principle, this principle in the book of Galatians, for example, when he says, you reap what you sow. It's the law of harvest. Whatever a man sows... Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what, what? What he sows. That's the law of harvest. You harvest, your harvest rather, is based on your actions, not on the actions of others. You reap what you sow. Clearly, there are many things about your life that you don't get to choose. I get that. You know, you don't get to choose where you came from. Your parents, you know. Your physical characteristic, tall, short, whatever. Your name. I told, I told the congregation today this morning, I hated my name. You, you know you know my name is Thel, but my name is Thelmo. That's the masculine to Thelma. That's right. It's true. And I hated that name, my parents, and I can't do anything about it. When I was in elementary school, man, I, I had more fistfights because of it. Because they try, kids are cruel, as you know, in, in, in 
I don't know about in your, in your neck of the woods, but in the Philippines they are. They, they call you all kinds of names, and they'll associate those names with ghosts and what have you, and they associated mine with ghosts. Because there's a, there's a thing in the Philippines, in myth, mythology kind of a thing, it's a myth, where there's this, this fire, that this ball of fire that's dancing around. It's St. Elmo's fire. You've heard that, right? And that's real. And so they call me San Thelmo. <laughs> and I hated that, and I was in more fist fights than anything else, because they'll call me San Thelmo, San Thelmo. And I walk, I'll go to my parents and say, what did you... And then they gave me a second name. The second name is Elpidio. Who would ever give you an Elpidio name? Man alive. So yesterday, a friend of mine, in Miz I haven't been in touch with him for a long, long time, because, you know, so he sent me a message on Facebook, and he said, hi, Thelma. <laughs> My, so I, I, I sent him back a message, I said, Thelma, with a big three question marks. And he profusely apologized. You expectant parents, please, when you name your kids, please, man, be wise. They may sound good to you, but man alive. Where was I? I got carried away about the name, huh? But here, here's what you get to choose. You get to choose your words, you get to choose your way into that situation, your attitude, you know. You can do that. You may not have chosen your way into that situation, but God says you can choose your way out of it with my help. That's the first thing I want you to see today, that you are responsible for you. That is what God said through Ezekiel. Second of all, who you are becoming is more important than who you've been. God is more concerned about your future than he is about your past. Aren't you thankful? Hmm? Come on. Listen to what he said in verse 21. If a wicked turns away from all the sins he's committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. And then he goes on to say, But if the righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered because of his unfaithfulness. He is guilty, and because of his sins he has committed, he will die. Who you are becoming is more important than who you have been. Now, we've all heard about one-hit wonders. You know what that is? Those musical acts who have been big hits, right? And nothing more. And some of these artists, man, they disappear and never hear from them again after their one-hit wonders. You light up my life. Remember that song by Debbie Boone? It was in the charts for, oh, many, many, many weeks. And then she was gone. One hit wonder. Right? You still remember that? Some of you remember that? You light up my life. Come on. Thank you very much. 
You want me to sing it for you? You give me hope to carry on, right? You light up my days, oh, well, and fill my nights with song. Hallelujah. Yeah. Well, one hit. That's it. But some, however, managed and built entire careers on one song. There's one song in the 70s titled, In the Summertime, Mungo something. 45 years later, this man who wrote still makes it a pretty good living out of this, traveling around the world singing it. You know what? It's not to mention all the royalties and the residuals that he receives. It is amazing how you can do that in the music business, one that can last your lifetime. But that is just in the music business. The problem is that some people try to do it in other areas. Some try to coast through an entire marriage on the strength of a good courtship. Have you seen it? Some guys seem to think, if I shower her with unlimited attention while we're engaged, <laughs> give her an expensive diamond ring, whoa. Take her to high-priced restaurants, shower her with gifts, send her flowers, cards, open the door, passenger side, <laughs> see to it that she's comfortable. You okay, honey? And like the gentleman that you are, you walk behind the car, man. Go to the driver's seat. Are you okay, sweetie, huh? Fasten your seatbelts now, sweetheart, okay? You're comfortable? Yeah, yeah, okay, that's fine. All right. Some of you ladies remember that, don't you? Well, walking, you always take the side closest to the curb. You know why that is? So that when there's an oncoming car, you get the hit. Not her. Ay, ay, ay. And after the wedding, you think, I can just kick back, put in neutral, and coast the rest of the way. It doesn't work. Now, some people do that with their job. After they get promoted to a certain level, they start to think, ooh, okay, this is good. Hmm, I can glide the rest of the way. And then some try to do it in their spiritual life. Their spiritual life is built on what they used to be back in high school when they were involved with the youth and in Sunday school and in a worship team and doing all kinds of stuff, involved in, in Sunday school or in college or back in college when you were with campus crusades or, or navigators and all of that, those, those youth for Christ. When the fire burned within them and they were determined to do great things for God. And over the years they have let the fire mellow. They have pursued other things. They have developed new priorities. And they are no longer the person that they, were, that they used to be. Now this leads you into some dangerous territory because, listen now, you cannot build a life with God based on who you used to be. Let me repeat that. 
You cannot build a life with God based on who you used to be. The flip side of this is that I happen to know many who are convinced that they can never fully receive the blessings of God in their life because of the bad things that they have done in the past. They're convinced that God has given up on them. But God says, in effect, absolutely not. And he says in verse 21, listen, if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. With God, today is always more important than yesterday. And the person you are becoming is always more important than the person you have been. Hallelujah. And if you want to take ownership of your life, and if you want to live under the blessings of God, then take a long, hard look at the person you are turning into and make sure, make sure you are moving in the direction you need to be moving toward God. And if you're ready to fix, stop fixing blame and start fixing your life, I want you to see that it all begins with a step in God's direction. God said to the people of Israel, rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Listen, rid yourselves of the offenses. In order to take ownership of your life, you, you, you take ownership of your actions, right? And if you're doing things that hurt others, then by all means, cut it out, man. If you're doing things that are not pleasing to God and you know it's displeasing God, then Time to cut it out. Take responsibility for what you do each day. And take responsibility for changing your behavior if it needs to change. Are you there? And then God says, get a new heart. I wonder if I have it here. There it is. And a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? Get a new heart. Now, how do you do that? Well, he tells us, not in this chapter, but a few chapters further down, further on, and listen to what he says in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Read it with me. Everybody go. I will give you... Wow. See, the power to change comes from God, right? You don't have that kind of power built in. The best we can do is make a mess of things, right? In order to change, you need a new heart and a new spirit. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the gift of God. That is why the Apostle Paul said, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God right there. Now here's the paradox, a contradiction. 
a statement seemingly absurd but true. And listen to this. God is calling you to take charge of your life. And the way you take charge of your life is by surrendering your life to him. Are you quiet? You're observing this or do you agree with me? You need a new heart and you need a new spirit. And these are things that you cannot create for yourself. But here's what you can do. You can take that first step in his direction and you say, God, I am ready to stop blaming everyone else for my lot in life and I'm ready to take responsibility for who I am, for my actions, and that means I'm putting my life in your hands and I'm taking the first step toward you and I'm asking you to change my heart and change my spirit and change my life. You take ownership of your life by surrendering your life completely to him. The people of Israel had this attitude. My problems are not my fault, man. They are my father's fault. God said to Ezekiel, that excuse does not fly anymore. It is time to stop fixing blame, and it's time to start fixing your life. Now, maybe... Maybe your situation is less than ideal. I get it. Maybe your parents or maybe your spouse or your boss did not do right for you. If so, you have two choices. One, you can resent them for the rest of your life and stay right where you are. Or you can take ownership of your situation in your life and start moving forward with God. All right? I want to close this morning with a story about a woman named Frances. Frances was born in 1820 in a small village in New York City. When she was about six weeks old, she developed an eye infection. And so the family physician was out of town, and so her parents called a local doctor to treat her eyes. And so he came and he put a, a concoction, a mustard concoction, and he placed it on the baby's eyes, but did not heal the infection. As a matter of fact, it made her go blind. Turns out the doctor was not a real doctor. He was a charlatan and he soon left town, but the damage was done. Growing up blind, as you could imagine, in the 19th century meant that she would have no real opportunity for education and for work. She tried to go to public school, but the school teacher told her that she was too dumb to learn, and so she stayed home and her grandma, grandmother, taught her from the Bible. Her father also died when she was young and her family struggled financially. But in spite of her conditions, Frances knew that life was good. She always had a special love for poetry. And at the age of eight, she wrote these words. Listen to this. She said, age eight, Oh, what a happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, I'm resolved that in this world, 
contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind? I cannot. And I won't. Deep thoughts for an eight-year-old, wouldn't you say? Frances easily could have spent her life blaming everyone else for her lot in life, blaming the doctor, blaming her parents, blaming the educational system, and blaming God. But instead of fixing the blame, Frances went on about fixing her own life, and she cultivated this very, very happy spirit. She took charge of her emotions and her future. At age 15, she was finally able to attend a special school in New York for the blind. She excelled in her studies, and after graduation, she stayed on at the school as a teacher. In her 30s, she became a published poet, and she also wrote some popular music at the time. But it was not until she was in her late 40s that she discovered her true calling. She began writing hymns and songs about her Christian faith. And by the time she died at the age of 95, she had written around 9,000 hymns. Publishers refused to publish her songs in one hymn book, so she used 200 pseudonames. Frances was her proper name, but she went by the name Fanny, Fanny Crosby. She wrote, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. He wrote those songs. Familiar to you, but you didn't know who wrote those songs, did you? Fanny Crosby wrote those songs. Jesus, keep me near the cross. And she also wrote one of my favorites. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things In Fanny, in Fanny Crosby, we have an example to follow. You know, if you look around, you can always find someone to blame for everything you don't like. Come on. About your life, about your situation. But you have heard it said before. How do you spell blame? Be lame. (laughs) 
when you blame others, you place limitations on yourself. Instead, God is calling you to take ownership of your life today. And that means that you decide once and for all that you will be responsible for you, that you will focus on who you are becoming rather than relying on who you have been, and that you will remember to surrender leadership of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ so that he can give you a new heart and fill you with his Holy Spirit and empower you to live for him. In this way, you're able to stop fixing the blame and start fixing your life. That's the word of the Lord for you today. And if you want to accept that, rise with me. Thank you for listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Feel free to make copies of this audio to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or change the content in any way without permission. For more information, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.